This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, death and resurrection. Resurrection, of course, comes with Easter. And with that holiday coming this weekend, we look at the rise of evangelicals in Latin America. And much of the region is in mourning after the death this week of author Gabriel Garcia Marquez. We'll have an in-depth interview discussing his life and career. But first, Megan Eckhamel is here. She has more on the death of that famous Colombian writer and the rest of the news from around Latin America. The Nobel Prize-winning author, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, has died. Recently, he was treated at a hospital in Mexico City, but was sent home. Relatives listed his cause of death as pneumonia. The Colombian writer was also known by his nickname, Gabo. Garcia Marquez's works are widely known across Latin America and the world. He is known for establishing the genre of magical realism, which won him the 1982 Nobel Prize for Literature. Colombia's president, Juan Manuel Santos, declared three days of official mourning to remember Colombia's greatest writer. For us Colombians, Gabo didn't invent magical realism. Instead, he exposed a country which embodies magical realism. Thank you, Gabo. Thank you, Master. Thank you for your words, your work, and your exemplary life. Garcia Marquez's genre, magical realism, sparked a surge of other authors using the same style. Some critics now say the genre is overused. Garcia Marquez was an outspoken supporter of Cuban communism and was a personal friend of Fidel Castro. The United States denied him visas for many years, due to this relationship until President Bill Clinton lifted the ban because of his admiration of the author and his work. Garcia Marquez was 87 years old. We'll have more on the death of the famous author later in this program. Cuban diplomats made a rare appearance at a U.S. university this week, coming to the campus of American University in Washington, D.C. to share their views. The diplomats complained about the U.S. economic embargo of Cuba, in place for 54 years. Alex Rodriguez Salazar, one of the Cuban diplomats, says Cuba is seeking a better diplomatic relationship with the U.S., instead of times when Cuba has been seen as a national security priority. We have been in that role. If you look at the history, the missile crisis, Cuba was a priority. Uh, the Bay of Pig, Cuba was a priority. So we don't want to be a priority that way. The diplomats also used the session to complain about the imprisonment of Cuban intelligence operatives, known as the Cuban Five. Three members of that group remain in prison in the U.S. Activists plan to stage a rally in June in D.C. to focus more attention on the case of the Cuban Five. Venezuela's government rejected a call for amnesty for political leaders jailed for supporting the country's protest movement. 
government leaders have met with leaders of the opposition for the past two weeks, attempting to end the violent street protests that have rocked the country since February. Former Mayor Leopoldo Lopez is the most high-profile opposition leader facing charges and is still in custody. But the government has also jailed two other opposition mayors of major cities. The leader of Venezuela's Supreme Military Council has admitted that the country's National Guard used excessive force in attempting to end the protests. Both Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have expressed concerns about the government's handling of the protest movement. The Guatemala Human Rights Commission, a nonprofit group in the U.S., is stepping up its lobbying efforts to get the Guatemalan government to pay war reparations to indigenous groups. The commission brought Macrina Gudiel to American University's campus this past week as part of its campaign. Gudiel's brother is among the disappeared from Guatemala's civil war, and her father was murdered after she brought her brother's case to the Inter-American Court on Human Rights. Gudiel said the trial of former dictator Efrain Rios Mant was key to overcoming the denial of human rights abuses in Guatemala. The topic of genocide was never talked about. Even the civil war wasn't talked about in public until the trial of Rios Mont. The military would say, what war? The United Nations says about a quarter of a million people died or disappeared during Guatemala's civil war that ended in 1996. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Akamel. Thanks, Megan. With Easter right around the corner, we thought this would be an appropriate time to look at the competition for religious dominance in Latin America. The ranks of evangelical Protestants are now challenging Catholicism in many countries in the region, especially in Brazil. We turn to Andrew Chestnut at Virginia Commonwealth University for answers. Chestnut's latest book is Devoted to Death, but his earlier books include Competitive Spirits, Latin America's New Religious Economy, and Born Again in Brazil, The Pentecostal Boom and the Pathogens of Poverty. Here are excerpts from our conversation. For probably a good 15 years now, uh, Brazil is home to the largest Pentecostal population on Earth, i.e. there are today more Pentecostals in uh, that Latin American giant than there are in its birthplace here in the United States. So, uh, yeah, Brazil really is kind of the epicenter If one nation is the epicenter of global Christianity, it's Brazil with the largest Pentecostal and, of course, the largest but rapidly declining Catholic population as well. So why do we see this rise of Pentecostalism and the decrease in interest in Roman Catholicism? Yeah, I hope I hope I answered that uh, in my first two books that that you made uh, mention of. there's, there's a lot of factors going on, um, but I think Pentecostalism really has expanded rapidly during the last six decades in the Latin America uh, on the basis uh, particularly of faith healing. Uh, I found that so many people had converted to these Pentecostal churches such as the 
Brazilian Assemblies of God, which is the largest Pentecostal denomination in the world with some 10 to 12 million members, at the time of a health crisis that they weren't able to resolve either in the Catholic Church or by secular means. Maybe they didn't have access to, to medical care. And so this, this great emphasis on healing one's wounds of poverty, what I call in the first book, the pathogens of poverty, I think is a really important factor for just the meteoric growth of Pentecostalism. But also, you know, on the cultural front, it's interesting how this American, U.S.-born religion of Pentecostalism, born in Los Angeles a century ago in 1905-1906, really has resonated culturally to a greater extent in less than a century in Latin America than Catholicism has over half a millennium, five centuries in Latin America. And so if we look at something which is really important for many Latin Americans in their worship services, music, the, uh, the type of music that's played Pentecostal and evangelical services uh, is much more Latin American, has much greater cultural resonance uh, than the Catholic, than the type of uh, you know, European-based hymns that, uh, that have been played uh, for centuries in the Catholic Church. Although I should say that the Catholic Church has updated, particularly with its more vibrant uh, movement of the uh, Catholic charismatic renewal. But in many kind of cultural ways, uh, Pentecostalism is more Latin American, more Latin Americanized than Catholicism is, despite the fact that the Catholic Church has had four more centuries to operate in the region than, uh, than this vibrant form of Protestantism has. Does it come down to just this, simply what we see in the worship services? In the Vatican II reforms, you see different music come in to Catholicism. It's a less staid ritual. Um, so... Is it as simple as music and, and involvement in the ritual itself? No, no, it's not as simple. I mean, there's lots of other factors, too. Another really important factor is that despite the fact that Latin America continues to be the most Catholic region on Earth, home to some 40% of all the world's Catholic population, uh, there's been an age-old priest shortage uh, and in contrast, in Pentecostal churches, uh, you, you really historically need no formal education to become a pastor. And so there's, there's way more Pentecostal preachers in Latin America, about 99% or more of whom are Latin American men themselves, uh, where, you know, ironically, paradoxically, Latin America has an enduring Catholic priest shortage, and so a lot of countries actually have a majority of priests who are foreigners, such as Guatemala, where the majority of, of Catholic priests are not Guatemalan. And so there's, there's obviously an enormous competitive advantage in the clergy, and, and I think this is going to be actually one of the first changes we see in the Catholic Church, possibly even under the papacy of Francis, I think we're going to start to see ordination of, uh, of married men uh, in the Catholic Church. That will be, I think, one of the great major reforms uh, in the next few years, possibly. That would be an earthquake of a reform, but I'm glad you brought up Guatemala. I remember being a reporter-producer in Guatemala in the early 1980s during the worst part of the Civil War, and the dictator at the time, Efrain Rios Montt, was, was an evangelical, was pushing evangelical religion, and had invited 
many um, Pentecostal uh, pilgrims and missionaries into the country. I remember following around a, a particular um, group that was trying to evangelize um, barrios in Guatemala City. And so we, we actually see this growth much earlier than, than now. Exactly, Rick. And, and I'm glad you mentioned um, Efrain Griosmont, who actually was the first Pentecostal head of state in Latin America in 1982-1983, and of course, best known for the genocide that he committed, uh, murdering some 30,000 fellow Guatemalans in, in just the space of less than a year and a half. So, uh, unfortunately, you know, our first Pentecostal head of state ended up being uh, uh, genocidal. But yes, and, and it's interesting that you mentioned Guatemala because the latest news that I just saw this morning. There's a massive new survey conducted by the Latin American polling firm uh, Latino Barometro, and they just point to several Latin American countries no longer, no longer being Catholic majority nations. Guatemala leads the list along with Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, no, I'm not sure about El Salvador, but Uruguay is also there. Um, the, the, the Central American countries I mentioned are only 47% Catholic now, and Uruguay is down to a stunning 41%. And I've already written about this, but if the trend does not continue, Brazil, the largest Catholic majority nation on earth, within 10 to 15 years, also will no longer be a Catholic majority nation, kind of mirroring the United States, which a few, few years ago... Uh, made the transition to no longer being a Protestant majority nation. I hear some interesting parallels between the form of evangelical practice in the United States and in Brazil. Uh, you mentioned um, charismatic televangelists, um, corruption scandals in Brazil. I, I think also, uh, if memory serves, also the trend of mega churches. So the form is not so different than what you might see in the United States. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the form is very similar. Mega churches, um, the, the theology I was talking about, prosperity theology, which is often known in this country as the health and wealth gospel, was also an, uh, an American import. Um, many of the bigger denominations in Latin America first got on TV in the uh, late 1980s and early 1990s, and of course, we're following the lead of American televangelists. So yeah, there's a lot of points of contact. However, Pentecostalism in particular in Latin America is thoroughly indigenous. In fact, in, in fact, many, many Central American and Brazilian denominations actually see the U.S. as mission territory uh, and have opened up churches in big city USA where they uh, where they preach to uh, not so much Brazilians but mostly to uh, Mexican and Central American immigrants and so one uh, one telling example would be the second largest Pentecostal church denomination in Brazil which is the very controversial Universal Church of the Kingdom of God what makes that church controversial it's prosperity, very strong prosperity preaching. In fact, there's a joke circulates around Brazil that says, oh, 
this church made a great innovation in tithing or giving 10% of your income to the church. Now they're asking for 30%, 10% for the Father, 10% for the Holy Spirit, and 10% for the Son. So all the Trinity get their 30%. Uh, also, their flamboyant, charismatic founder and leader, Edgir Macedo, who has lived in the U.S. for at least the last 20, 25 years, was recently put on a Forbes list of, uh, of billionaires in Brazil. And uh, he's been accused of all kinds of uh, financial crimes in Brazil as well. And uh, he's, he's, you know, one of the... One of the Brazilians that many non-Pentecostal uh, Brazilians love to hate and, uh, and is often uh, the target of, uh, of many investigations and, and media exposés in Brazil. Thank you so much, Professor Andrew Chestnut of Virginia Commonwealth University and the author of Born Again in Brazil and Competitive Spirits, our guest today on Latin Pulse, joining us via Skype. Thank you for having me back, Rick. It was a pleasure, as always. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call one 800 call WWF. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. As we mentioned earlier, Nobel Prize winning author Gabriel Garcia Marquez died earlier this week in Mexico City. Garcia Marquez is known as an innovator who brought magical realism center stage in Latin American literature. Colombia's president, Juan Manuel Santos, reacted to his death by saying, 100 years of solitude and sadness for the death of the greatest Colombian of all time. That quick obituary cleverly references the Colombian writer's most famous book, 100 Years of Solitude, published in the 1960s. We asked Nuria Villanova of American University, an expert on Latin American literature, to help us reflect on the life and legacy of Garcia Marquez, the writer affectionately known as Gabo. The greatest writer in Latin American history? Well, that's the tricky question, isn't it? Because who is... Who has the right to say who is the greatest and whether there is only one who has to be the greatest? So it's like, you know, Faulkner or Joyce, are they? Who, who is the greatest in the English literature? Probably what happens, and uh, that's my feeling, is that you wouldn't be able to put... Um, it, you would never be able to put it in that way if you talk about French literature or English literature because it's taking for granted that you have many greatest ones. Whether when we go to Latin American literature, no doubt he's one of the very, very best. And I mean, he's just so such a good writer and that's what, you know, it's almost impossible to say otherwise. But at the same time, there are other writers that have been also really good, but maybe have not had a transcendence that he has or has they haven't been able to sell as much or to be you know translated in so many languages and to become this kind of writer myth figure that everybody praises and I'm saying that with my highest respect to him and his work of course but greatest I don't have an answer there. (laughs) One of his criticisms of the publishing world in the 80s when he won his Nobel Prize was that he took some responsibility for opening the door 
to Latin American literature. And he said, this prize is also shared with, with all who are with me. Mm-hmm. But that says something about how Latin American literature was received globally. Exactly. That's, uh, that's you've just said, you know, exactly what I feel as well, is that, and I, I want to, before going into that um, direction, I want to say that uh, when he won the Nobel Prize, he's probably one of the Latin American writers who has won the Nobel Prize, who really deserved, you know, I'm not saying that the others don't, but he, I don't know, Octavio Paz does it as well. Vargas Llosa to a certain extent, but he's probably the strongest and the most, you know, the thoroughest and also the most maybe consistent all along the way. And I do agree that uh, that you know, that prize was a prize for a whole generation and maybe for a whole country who had been so badly beaten by, you know, dictatorships and uh, all the conflicts that went along through the years of the Cold War, especially from, you know, late 50s through, you know, late 80s. And that's exactly when that prize um, was given to him. So that had it did have that kind of, you know, projection. His speech that day is just amazing. It's one of, to me, it's one of his best pieces of work. Is the speech that he gave, and it's called "The Solitude of Latin America." So it was like, you know, the solitude, um, 100 years of solitude, and then he put that title. Many years later, as he faced the firing squad, General Aureliano Buendía was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice, the opening line from 100 Years of Solitude. 100 Years of Solitude was a a breakthrough in the late 60s to establish this genre, was it not? How different was that than anything else that had been there before? Completely different. I think that what happened is that uh, being able to portray or to evoke a reality in which you incorporates what we understand as and when I say we I seem from a very Western perspective detached from the reality of that precise world we understand as magical that's a level that we put to that I'm not sure whether this is exactly what it deserves to be called then that mixture that you're talking about things is not like fantastic literature or like Harry Potter the whole universe of Harry Potter is credible in itself, but it's fantastic. Magical realism is reality, a portrayal of what is credible and real in fiction, and then you insert those elements, like, you know, somebody levitating, or a tree where you have buried people inside, and that their own, you know, blood can feed the people in the outside world because the fruits of that tree are you know, nourished by that. So this is something so amazing, so attracting as well. And when you read, you know, those sentences like in Erendida, which is the the sad story of Erendida and her heartless grandmother that has this wonderful long, you know, and if you, it's a metaphor of dictatorship and oppression, and yet it's all, you know, it's all that symbolic universe where you have, the grandmother saying, you know, Erendi, that you need to water the graves, otherwise the Amadisis, her husband and, um, you know, and, and, um, and, uh, and, and an, an uncle of Erendida, they are going to be thirsty 
if they wake up, you see. And this is just, wow, you know, you say, oh, this is wonderful. But then what happens is that these beliefs that if you have somebody buried in your backyard, you have to take care of those graves, these beliefs are not so magical for the people around there. I mean, the market always would say the same. All the stories that I would write and I would have, you know, in words, they were told to me when I was a child by my grandparents. There is nothing magical there, it's just my reality. That is something that, you know, it's not me only, I think many of us doing Latin American literature and, um, and writers like Julio Cortázar in Argentina, also in the 70s, would claim that this is a category, a, a label that has been, you know, needed for the publishing industry, industry to kind of put this label there and say, you know, this is magical realism, but the concept itself comes from Germany. So it's not a Spanish concept. I mean, in, in the 50s, it was a way to talk about pictorial art in Germany, that it, was, it had this kind of magical touch of reality. And if you want, you could see magical realism, you know, if you change the parameters. So Garcia Marquez doesn't create magical realism, but he establishes it more in the publishing world I than anyone else before. I would say that he does create it in, in that particular writing, he doesn't create the concept. The concept, I don't even think he would agree with that concept, you see. The concept is something that was already established, and the concept is something that helps us, and I would say academia, publishing houses, the public in general, journals, you know, reviews of books, to try to identify and categorize things, because we need that. We need that just to, you know, that's the way we work. That's the way we need to approach things. Otherwise, we wouldn't know how to handle them. But at the same time, this is very damaging because you're putting these kind of labels, etiquettes to things. You see what I mean? You had to write following a kind of pattern. Otherwise, you wouldn't be exotic enough. You wouldn't be Latin American enough. So then you have the generation that comes after them, the generation that now are on their 50s, that start writing, started writing like early 90s, and they do feel that constraint. Crazy people are not crazy if one accepts their reasoning from Of Love and Other Demons. I think he became that um, a myth of himself in a way because he's a very appealing person. He just has this writing universe in himself. And that's what we create, I think, in the academia. I said before in the publishing industry, we need those kind of myths, so we do create them. I don't think they create them themselves, not even their writing, but some, that 100 years of solitude is just like, I don't know, I don't want to make comparisons, but Ulysses of Joyce is one of these major, uh, Quixote, I don't know, one of these major, major works that somebody has created. So comparable to Cervantes. In that sense, you know, it's a major work, it's a major, Quixote is a major work as well, and it's so, I mean, it has so many readings in itself, and you can interpret that so modern uh, still now, and it's from the early 17th century. And if you read, you can see it's like Shakespeare. Nowadays, you have performance that are put in like modern times and even postmodern times of Shakespeare, and they make sense because the values, the, 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 the things that he was evoking are so 
present still, so current. I think that happens with 100 years of solitude. What happens is that you have a universe there that is very political at the same time as magical, if you want to use that word, just for us to be in, you know, on a common ground of understanding. And it opens up that uh, amazing, and he's, he's written brill, brilliantly. I mean, it's just, I don't have enough words to say that it's true. His work is so large and prolific, and he was also, this is something that also has to be highlighted, he was an amazing journalist, one of the very best. I do pay my highest respects, and you know, we have really lost somebody who was an amazing person and a wonderful and great writer, no doubt. Thank you so much. Nuria Villanova of American University, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud. Or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Megan Eckhamel, writer Ray Daniel, and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions.